0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a typed outline of today's message, you can go to the show notes or details page of your podcast platform. You know, when we think about our lives, we ultimately have two choices according to Psalm 1. We have the choice to be forgiven or not to be forgiven. We can grow in God and his truth or we can get blown away in sin. Which will you choose? And now, here's Tom Claiborne with a third message in a new series in the Psalms called Praise and Peace in a Broken World. Preacher and author Stuart Briscoe moved to America many years ago from England. When he arrived, he had never before seen American football. So I want you to listen as he describes his thoughts the first time he saw an American football game, and it's obvious he had no clue what was going on or why. Why? And notice, please, the date he arrived in, having never seen American football. He says, it was January 1 when I arrived on my first visit to the United States. I turned on the television and saw a picture of the like of which I had never seen before. It was a rear view shot of a row of big men in tight pants bending over in such a fashion that they appeared to be putting intolerable strain on said pants. Behind them stood a man who seemed to have lost his temper completely. He was yelling and shouting, apparently because the other man had his ball and he wanted it back. the Quarterback, okay. Eventually, after much shouting, they gave it to him. He promptly gave it to one of his friends. He ran a few steps and was treated to an awful beating by some other men wearing similar type pants, but of a different color. Now they were apparently very sorry about their behavior because after they had beaten him up, they gathered in a small group to pray about it. They were not sincere, however, because they went straight back and did the same thing again. After repeating this whole outrageous procedure about ten times, the man with the ball suddenly threw it about 60 yards to another man I had not noticed before. He caught it, ran a few yards, did a funny little dance, and the crowd went wild. I thought I had stumbled on some religious festival. Subsequently, he says, I discovered I was right. <laughs> and was completely mystified until someone started to explain what was happening to that, uh, so that a newly arrived Englishman could understand. Now, Listen as he gives his application regarding the touchdown, and then I'll make a different point. He says it appeared that the quarterback had so effectively faked a handoff to his running back that the defensive line and linebackers had played the run, leaving the receiver wide open to catch the pass and go in for a touchdown. He says, and it all happened because the defensive players chased the man without the ball. All right, now there's a lesson in that application, but I want to make another one. I thought of this lesson of him watching football. If Stuart Briscoe, the British preacher, had tried to play American football, it would have been a disaster because he didn't understand the game. (laughs) My friends, there are a whole lot of people messing up the game of life because they don't really understand life. Psalm 1 tells us some very important things about life, and actually this morning we're going to call them life's alternatives. Psalm 1 uses what's called Hebrew parallelism to draw a contrast between two kinds of life and two ultimate destinations. Now, this kind of parallelism is very common in Proverbs. It's actually not in Psalms normally, but it is in this one. It begins, Blessed is the man. And then it proceeds to describe the kind of person that God blesses and the kind of person God will not bless. And please do not get hung up on the gender pronouns and try to cancel me or my sermon. <laughs> Because it keeps saying he and the man and all this. Folks, it was written 3,000 years ago, and we all know it's talking to all of us, okay? So just in our simple little culture, don't get bent out of shape with the gender stuff here, okay? All right, three life choices are your three main points on your outline. Here's the first life choice. We can either play with sin or focus on God. We can either play with sin or focus on God. Here's the first two verses. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the first option we're going to look at is the negative one. It's implied in verse 1 as something the good person avoids. And that is that we can digress into sin. We can digress into sin. The word digress simply means to drift away from the right thing or from the main focus. Now, that reminds me, we talk about digress, of some other words that are similar. Years ago, I read, someone had written, if pro is the opposite of con, does that mean that progress is the opposite of Congress? answer is yes okay (laughs) well notice what it says about this digression again verse 1 blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked stage 1 or stand in the way of sinners stage 2 or sit in the seat of mockers on your outline there's a digression i want you to write in here walk stand and sit Now, here's the picture here. The first image is of a person listening to the wrong person occasionally as they walk past them. You know, there's this dangerous conversation, dangerous situation, and we just kind of walk past. You know, we're we're near it, but we're not really involved in it. Then the next step is, will we stop and stand there with them a while? And then the last sequence is, we sit down and become comfortable in that setting. Do you see the digression there? There's an Old Testament example of this, at least one, in the life of Abraham's nephew who was named Lot. Genesis 13, when we meet meet Lot, it says this, Lot pitched his tent near Sodom. Now notice the wording. Sodom was one of the most wicked cities of the day. Sodom was later destroyed along with the city of Gomorrah. And it says, Lot pitched his tent near Sodom. But by chapter 19, we find out that Lot is no longer living near Sodom. He has moved into Sodom and has become part of the city. The middle of chapter 19, he didn't want to leave Sodom. He was near Sodom, then he moved into Sodom, and then he didn't want to leave Sodom. I have watched that dangerous digression play out many times over the years in people's lives and even with myself at times. And you know how we do it, don't we? Oh, this isn't really that bad. Or this won't really hurt anything. Or it's just this one time. And pretty soon we find ourselves in much deeper than we could have ever imagined. We walked past, and then we stood a while, and then we ended up just sitting down and camping out there. Reminds me of one of my favorite stories of how not to handle temptation, and forgive me, I've told this several times through the years, about the overweight business executive who had decided it was time to lose some weight. So he started... Walking and exercising, and especially he changed his diet. And he was going to avoid uh, desserts and, and a lot of things like that. So to make sure he stayed on, on task and with this diet, he changed his driving route to work so they he would no longer have to drive past this bakery he used to stop at every morning. Well, everybody was proud of him, and he was making progress, losing weight, uh, staying disciplined until one morning he came into the office carrying a big giant coffee cake. And they got on him. They said, What's the deal? What happened? You were doing so well. Why did you stop at the bakery this morning? He goes, Well, he goes, This is a very special coffee cake. He goes, You know, I forgot. And I drove past the bakery this morning. And I thought, Well, maybe that's no accident. So I just prayed to God, Lord, if you want me to have one of those delicious coffee cakes in the window, let me find a parking place directly in front of the bakery. And he said, Sure enough, the eighth time around the block, there it was. <laughs> You know, it's not so funny when we keep walking closer and closer to sin and we eventually stop in and then we sit down to stay. You see, it does matter what we see and what we hear, where we go, and what we fill our mind with. It matters who we spend our time with. And who we listen to is one of the warnings in verse 1. There's an interesting warning in 1 Corinthians 15 in the midst of all those verses about the resurrection of Jesus. It pauses and gives this warning. Do we have that? 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and 34. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Compare that to verse 1. Come back to your senses, as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, I say, this to your shame. In you've gone over very ignorantly and hung around with these people who are dragging you away from God. Verse 1 in our text calls that the counsel of the wicked or the seat of mockers. Now folks, I probably don't have to tell you that in our increasingly secular and humanistic culture, There is a lot of mocking of God going on, mocking the Bible and mocking Christian principles, and mocking the concept of creation, and mocking the concept of heaven and hell, and especially hell, and mocking the concept of biblical sexuality that God created male and female. So I want to ask you, are you routinely watching TV shows or movies or things on the internet, or even mainstream news networks that mock Christian principles. Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. James 1 gives us this warning in verses 14 and 15. It says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, and that's what sin does, gives birth to death. Are you playing with sin? You're walking by, and then you stand a while, and then you sit down and camp there. Well, there's a better option, verse 2 tells us. And that is, instead of playing with sin, we can delight in God. God. We can delight in God. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You see, the person God blesses listens to good counsel. So there's two parts to that. Number one, we can delight in God's Word. This person realizes that God gives his laws as loving instructions and warnings for our lives. Psalm 119, as I said in introducing this series, longest chapter in the Bible, virtually all but six verses, I think it is, mentions God's Word in some way or another. But picking up in Psalm 119, starting in verse 9, notice this. How can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. The key word there is delight. That's more than just reading. It's more than just studying the Bible. It's enjoying it. It's being fascinated by it. It's being hungry for it. Thus, we see a word that keeps popping up all through the psalm. Psalm 119, verse 24, your statutes are my delight. Verse 47, for I delight in your commands because I love them. Verse 70, their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. Here's the questions I want us to ask ourselves. Are you delighted to be able to hear the creator of the universe talk to you from his book? Are you delighted to hear the word of life? Are you delighted to hear where you came from and where you're going from God's perspective? There's another key word in our text, and that's the word meditates. On his law, he meditates day and night. Now, meditating is more than just reading. It's reading and contemplating. It's pondering and studying and analyzing. Do you realize that this Hebrew word that's translated meditates was also used in that time period to refer to a cow chewing its cud? You know how they hunt, you know, keep chewing and chewing and chewing. It's saying God blesses the person who chews choose, choose on God's word and gets all he or she can from it. Now let me give a a warning about Bible reading programs, okay? As you know, I believe in Bible reading programs. I believe in the one where you read through the Bible in a year. I do it every year. I intend to do that the rest of my life if possible. But there is one, one danger with those kind of programs. We run the risk of just reading and not really meditating on. So That's why about nine years ago or something, I thought, okay, I'm not just going to read it from now on. I'm going to pick something every day, one verse, one thought from what I've read and write it in my journal as something to continue to ponder and think through and work into my life. God wants us to meditate on what he has said. But there's even a step further here, and that's your small point number two there. We not only delight in God's word, we delight in God's way. We'll say one thing about this. In other words, we commit ourselves with the help of the church and the Holy Spirit to living God's way. So to summarize our first choice, we can play with sin or we can focus on God. And it makes all the difference in the world which one we choose. All right, here's the second major alternative we have in this song. We can grow near the streams or get blown away. Listen to these two contrasting images, verse 3 and 4. He, talking about the person who's meditating on God, he is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. So the first image we have is of a healthy tree planted by the water. So number one, it's near the source of life. Notice that the word streams is plural there. So it may very well have been a place where two streams met, which would make it a very fertile, well-watered place. What a great place to plant a tree. And what a great place to plant a life by those waters from God. Notice it uses the word planted. That implies purpose. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a bird dropping a seed. It's the image of being transported to that very spot by the water on purpose. In Israel, even today, it is so dry and so arid that if you see anything growing in Israel, it's either by a stream, by a lake, or it's being irrigated. So this image is so important. The tree planted by streams of water is the only one that's going to survive. Jeremiah 17 gives a very similar image in verses 7 and 8. I want you to remember these verses for a few minutes from now when we see the two verses before them. But Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8 says, 7 and 8 says blessed, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream." It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. You see, when we are planted in the right place in life, we can handle the dry times of life. We can even handle the raging winds and storms of life. And it's been interesting to me to watch over the last, 11 months, how differently so many people have handled the pandemic and the associated things with it. Here's a question. How firm do you stand in the storms of life? How deep are your roots? How close are you staying to the source of life? You see, when we're close to God, who is our source of life, life cannot defeat us. And nothing in life can defeat us. Healthy tree stays near the source of life, but the healthy tree also bears fruit. Last part, middle part of verse 3 says, which yields its fruit in season. Now, we're not going to turn it over, but in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a woman at the well in Samaria and tells her twice, verses 10 and 14, that he gives living water. Then John 7, Jesus talks about living water again, and this time he's referring to the Holy Spirit that Christians are given as being our living water. But the result is, if Jesus is our living water and His Spirit is the living water that flows into us, we can bear fruit. And thus we have these two famous verses in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit, the living water who's in us, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things. There's no law. So I want you to look at that list again. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you and I are struggling with any of those nine things, we need to take a good look at where our life is planted. And then move back near the streams of life. Because if we don't, if we don't, we become like the chaff in verse 4. Listen how it starts out, not so. In other words, all those good things, standing firm, having strength, bearing fruit, all this stuff, but it says, not so the wicked. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. This was a common agricultural image in those days. The farmers with their old-fashioned equipment would separate the grain from the chaff. In other words, the chaff was the empty husks and the straw and all the waste stuff. By throwing it in the air. And the wind would catch the chaff, the waste stuff, and blow it away. And then the good grain would fall to the ground in a pile and be gathered into bins and later be ground into flour and be made something useful. So listen again with that image in mind. Not so the chaff, they are like the wind, they are like the chaff that the wind blows away. So different from the healthy tree near the stream. So on your outline again, you can write in this digression. If we're not near the streams of God, we have no roots, and thus no life, and thus no hope. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 and 6, preceding the verses we looked at a few minutes ago, says this. Very similar once again. This is what the Lord says, "'Cursed is the one who trusts in man, "'who draws strength from mere flesh, "'and whose heart turns away from the Lord. "'That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. "'They will not see prosperity when it comes. "'They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, "'in a salt land where no one lives.'" So the choice is ours. "'He is like a tree planted by streams of water, "'which yields its fruit in season, "'and whose leaf does not wither.'" Whatever he does prospers, but not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. You need to be transplanted to a place beside God's water. Now we come to the third and final alternative that we're given to make a choice about. We can fall at the judgment or stand forgiven. Verse 5 and 6 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Let that soak in. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Our choices have consequences. Our beliefs have consequences. So we're given two alternatives. The negative alternative is this. We can be judged by our sin. Why don't you go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3 and hold that for just a minute. We can be judged by our sin. Now, I think many people, many Christians even, have a terrible misconception about Judgment Day. There are too many people that see Judgment Day as a day when God's going to pull out this giant scales and I'm going to stand before Him or you're going to stand before Him and God's going to get the scales of my life and your life. And then he's going to compare all the good stuff I did on the one side of the scales and all the bad stuff on the other side. And as long as the good stuff outweighs the other, we're good to go. You know, we, we've earned our way into heaven. You know, the winner takes it all. I love how Ed Bowsman years ago illustrated how that does not work that way. He said, "Some folk have the idea that if their good works outweigh their, their bad, God has no choice but to save them." He said, "Nobody seriously believes that." Suppose a man who has been married for thirty—a man has been married for thirty years. He has been a pillar in the community. He has a fine family, wonderful grandchildren. He belongs to the church. He sings in a choir. He gives to the benevolent organizations. But then one day he robs the bank and steals seventy-five thousand dollars. What kind of response would he get from the court if he made this plea? Judge, look at my record as a husband, father, and pillar in the community. Look at all the good I've done for the human race. Now weigh all that, God, or judge, against one little old teensy-weensy bank robbery. (laughs) My good works far outweigh my bad. You surely have to turn me loose because I'm more good than bad. It says, there's no way this plea would work in the court system today. And there's no way it will work before God. The way of the ungodly shall perish. Now that I've kind of eliminated that idea, consider what Romans 3.23 says. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. <laughs> all. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, our sin separates us from God, and we cannot go into His presence with our sin in our life, and death is the punishment for for our sins, whether it's a 1,000 sins or 95,000 sins or one sin. So look at Romans 3, 19 and 20 says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Catch that phrase, every mouth may be silenced. In other words, we can't go and tell God how wonderful we are. Verse 20, therefore, no one will be just declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So it's saying as sinners, we might as well just shut up and not try to talk our way out of our mess with God, or we'll end up sounding really stupid. Stupid, like the list of claims I read from a Toronto newspaper several years ago, people were trying to explain away their automobile accidents to their insurance provider. Here were some of their actual explanations. Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. Someone else says, I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. Really? This one says, the truck backed through my windshield into my wife's face. (laughs) Catch this one. A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. They're reaching, aren't they? The guy was all over the road, and I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. (laughs) If the other driver had stopped a few yards behind himself, the accident would not have happened. How about this one? I had been driving my car for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. Yeah, I'd say. (laughs) I'd fall asleep, too. How about this one? I was on my way to to the doctor's office. With rear- end trouble when my universal joint gave way, causing me to have an accident. I think it was confusing his car and his body. <laughs> this one says I was sure the old fellow would never make it to the other side of the roadway when I struck him. The pedestrian had no idea which way to go, so I ran over him. Find out, I'd better quit. Oh, two more. The telephone pole was approaching fast. I was attempting to to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. And then this one. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed into the embankment. (laughs) No comments on that one. You know, if we stood before God on Judgment Day and tried to explain why we are not guilty and why God should let us into heaven, our excuses would sound just as absurd. We don't deserve forgiveness, and we don't deserve heaven as sinners. Now, verse 5, back in our text, we'll go back to Romans again. But Verse 5 in our text says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And we usually, when we hear that word wicked, we usually think in our minds of someone really, really bad, you know, the really bad sinner kind of sinners, you know, the murderers, the rapists, the uh, human traffickers or whatever. Now in Scripture, in here, it's simply meaning those who are the ungodly, those who make no time for God, those who go their own way apart from God. That's the wicked. As sinners, we cannot stand before God We won't be acquitted, and we won't have a leg to stand on as sinners before God, none of us. And verse 5 says, we won't be in heaven as sinners. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. See, we get what we deserve and what we delight in, um, but I got some good news. We have another alternative. Instead of being judged by our sin, we can be declared righteous. Please notice carefully my wording. We can be declared righteous. We're not righteous, but we can be declared righteous by God. Verse 6, "...for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." The righteous can go and be with God. Now, go back to Romans 3, if you would, and got bad news and good news. The righteous can go into the presence of God forever, but we're not righteous. Verse 20, again, in Romans 3, says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But it gets better. Verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice, because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith. And Jesus. Do you realize that there are basically two categories of people in the world? There are the righteous and there are sinners. Okay? So you got this righteous category over here, and you have the sinner's category. Well, in the righteous category, you have one person, (laughs) Jesus. And my name's not there, and yours isn't either. We're in this category because we're sinners. So that doesn't sound very good. But Jesus Romans 3 and 4 tells us, came over to our side of the equation, the center side, and took the punishment for everyone else by dying in our place on the cross. And therefore, Romans 4 verse 3 says, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then jump down to verse 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. So if we are in Christ, we can be declared righteous and move to the other side of the equation like this chart shows. Now it looks like this when we've accepted Christ. On the righteous side of the equation is Jesus who belonged there, but also everyone who is in Christ, who's had their sins forgiven through the blood of Jesus, they get to be on the righteous side, we get to be on the righteous side, but still on the other side you have the unforgiven sinners. In Christ, we can stand before God as sinners whose sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. So that when God looks at us, He sees Jesus' blood, He sees the price that's been paid, and He declares us to be righteous, even though in reality we're not fully. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9-11 through 11 says this, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now it starts listing some examples. Either the sexually immoral... Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, or, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is what some of you were, he says. But <laughs> you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God, so any of those things listed up above or any other sin can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus because His blood can wash away all sin. And then we can be declared righteous before a holy God. So, bottom of your page, at the end of time, Scripture tells us there will be two groups of people. Two groups of people. There will be sinners forgiven by the blood of Jesus and there will be sinners who are not forgiven. Every person on the planet will be in one or the other of those categories. There's no third category. There's no halfway in between. There are sinners who have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus and sinners who are not forgiven. We're going to sing a song. A song to... Look at our lives, look at our hearts, look where we're standing, where we're sitting. (laughs) Look where we really are in our life. I would contend that the two most important times in each of our services are the Lord's Supper time we just had, where we recall what Jesus did to buy our salvation. And also the time at the end, no matter what it might look like in various churches, where we all decide what we're going to do about that. And I hope especially the last part of the sermon has tied together exactly what Jesus did and exactly what he offers to you and me. And I hope you also will ponder that thing of where we're walking or standing or sitting. Because if you and I are sitting in the wrong place, we need to move. If we're staying a little bit too long, too close, we need to move. We're far away from the streams of God, we need to move We go back. But if you're still in the unforgiven sinner category, this time is for you to respond to the grace that Jesus offers through his own blood. To come in repentant faith, say I'm going to do it his way, I'm going to trust him completely for my salvation. Be willing to bury your old life in that water grave called baptism and say, that life's gone. Now I'm going to rise to walk with God forever, close to him. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.